Hello and welcome to Beyond the Frame, presented by Film London and hosted by me, Adrian Wooten, CEO of Film London, where we talk to people from across the screen industries about what they've created and how they've created it. Earlier this season, we talked to two creative voices responsible for very different facets of drama, but we still have a little more ground to cover. In this episode, we talked to two more voices from the world of drama who both come at it from very different perspectives. First, we're delighted to be talking to Julian Fellows, one of the premier voices in British drama. Writing screen drama for over 30 years, Julian has adapted Vanity Fair, Piccadilly Jim and Romeo and Juliet for the screen. His work on Gosford Park and Downton Abbey has also earned him a Best Screenplay Oscar and a Best Writing Emmy. We also have Lucy Bryden, a new up-and-coming director whose stunning debut feature, Body of Water, was made through Film London's Microwave Strand and released earlier this year. First, here's famed scriptwriter Julian Fellows discussing drama with me. Thank you very much for, for talking to me, Julian. Uh, it's a great pleasure um, to, to have the chance to chat to you. And, and I wanted to start rather obviously, um, because our, our young audience on, on the podcast is always interested in this, about beginnings and, and how, how you got into the business. Now, I'm aware that, that you studied drama and you actually, um, your career really uh, began in, in acting and performance. And I, I'm just wondering... Um, were you always, did you always hanker, even whilst you were building your acting career, were you always sort of set thinking, I am going to be a writer, this is going to ha- be how I pivot, or, or or was it something that evolved organically? No, I, I don't think I w- was thinking along those lines. I mean, my whole life has been a series of completely random events that I've never planned. Uh, and uh, I mean, I knew... I was interested in writing because I'd wanted when I was young, when I was leaving drama school and still an acting assistant stage manager in rep, um, I wanted to publish books. And I did publish three sort of bodice rippers just to kind of show it could be done, to be honest. I didn't have anything else to prove. Uh, But I wanted to be an actor. I mean, I wanted to be... Uh, a movie star. I mean, I didn't think I was Tom Cruise, but I thought I might be Robert Morley. And and that was the plan. Uh, and, you know, I managed to get work. Uh, I mean, that in itself, when I look back, uh, is quite strange, really, because it was very much not the era of me. If I'd been doing all of it 20 years earlier, in the early 50s, I think I would have been fine. Yes. But by then... I was completely out of fashion as a type. And it was the age of the great uh, working class actors from the North and uh, Albert Finney, you know, Tom Courtney, Alan Bates, all of these people. And they had really reshaped British film. I mean, it had moved away from kind of Valerie Hobson, you know, and it was uh, an altogether grittier affair. Uh, But uh, I mean, I did put a lot of work into getting work. And I think that's true for writers as well, is that you have to put a lot of effort into getting work, finding out about the industry, finding out who you know, who, who you know, who they know, uh, and just any string you can pull, you must pull it. Uh, and and for that, by that, I did get work as an actor. I mean, I was really... I think I had one rather bad year, but apart from that, I was never long out of work. I was in the West End for about four years. Uh, And then my last main acting job, well, I think my last acting job actually, uh, was Monica the Glen on BBC. And that went on for about five years. And so, um, you know, I felt I was an actor. I thought I was. Uh, And it was only because it had begun to occur to me that the career I had envisaged wasn't materialising, that I had had need of a plan B. And my plan B actually was not to be a writer, but to be a producer. Uh, And I started uh, aiming to produce a series for children's drama at the BBC, which in those days was a different department. Now that's gone. And I think the whole setup is rather different. But uh, uh, anyway, in those days it was. And, and we managed to get a show set up. Uh, and in order to 
encouraged the BBC to make it. We got them to suggest a writer. Uh, but when uh, the scripts came in, uh, Emma always said, my wife always says, I'm rather unfair about this, actually, and I probably am. But anyway, we didn't feel they were makeable. Right. And, and so we wanted to have six more scripts, but we'd spent all the money. And so I said, uh, well, we'll have to get someone to write it for nothing. And I always remember the BBC producer said, what fool would do that? <laughs> uh, I was that fool. And um, so we, uh, we got this series going. And it, by a, a stroke of luck, um, it did very well. It was, I think it was the only children's show in the top 10 sales of the year. Right. And, and suddenly uh, that makes other people sit up, you know, because nobody has the confidence of their own opinion mm -hmm. in your work. They need other people to think you're good yes. before yes. they want you. Actually, as an actor or a writer, there's no difference in that. Uh, and once you start to get the validation of popularity from someone else, then they look at you with different eyes. You have, obviously, you've written lots of original drama, and I'm, I'm going to talk to you about that. But I just wanted you to talk about adaptation because you did Little Old Fondle, you've done Vanity Fair, you've done Dr. Thorne, you've, done, you've, done, you've taken on some very, very kind of meaty, um, you know, very famous works and adapted them for, for film and television. And I just wondered in terms of the difference between adapting or, or just something you've created yourself, is it a different set of skills? Is it, is it harder? Is it easier to adapt in terms of screenplay? The thing about adaptation is you're very seldom asked to adapt a book that failed. Right. And so you have a kind of uh, insurance, if you like, that there is a story in there that works uh, on some level. Yeah. And your business is to take it to a different medium and to make it work in a different way. Uh, and all of that is quite hard, I suppose, uh, in as much as anything is hard, except for sitting in a chair with a glass of champagne. But, but um, <laughs> I think you have an assurance in that, that with an original work, of course, you don't. And if you're writing an original work for television, before the first series goes out, there is absolutely no guarantee that it won't be a complete dud. Right. I mean, all, it's only been seen mainly by people who made the show, who are notoriously bad at judging whether it has any legs. And your wife and your children, you know, your child is more judgmental than your wife. I think I can take that away from it. But um, uh, if, you're, if you're adapting a book... Um, what you try to do is to remember that this book uh, belongs to a lot of people by then. And uh, it is, you know, your original work belongs only to you. Right. But, but uh, a, a, another book, uh, Vanity Fair, whatever, belongs to everyone who's ever read it and enjoyed it. And because you're trying to put, I mean, in Vanity Fair, you've got a 500 page novel or something, yeah. and, and you're trying to put it into two hours. Uh, which means basically that you're cutting nine-tenths of it. Yeah. And um, you try, or I, I try, uh, to identify which bits are kind of iconic, which moments are sacrosanct. Um, you, you know, um, Becky Sharp throwing the Bible out of the carriage when she leaves school or whatever it is. Yes, yeah. uh, and if you get that mainly right, then on the whole, the adaptation has a reasonably good shot. But uh, if you leave any of them out, then you're, you're risking it. Uh, then you are faced, I mean, sometimes it's fun that you don't have to cut much. I mean, with Belgravia, I had six hours to tell the story of a not particularly long novel. Well, no. So uh, I didn't really have to cut anything, right. but uh, normally that isn't so. I mean, certainly with Dr. Thorne, I had to cut a lot, and with Vanity Fair, I had to cut an enormous amount. Uh, and you just have to hope that you've selected 
the right strands of story. It's no good thinking you can tell every story in the book because you can't. And you have to decide which of the narrative strands you're going to tell. And when you've written the script, you have to be sure or try to get others to help you be sure that you have told those stories so they stand up as narratives. Because it's very easy in visual filmmaking and, and uh, uh, anything else, television, um, you, you write the script, you film the script, and then you go into post and you start to nibble it. And it isn't yeah. the writer who's nibbling. It's the editor and the director. <laughs> yes. And they take yes. out this reference to the fact that they're sisters. And then they take out that one. And then they take out that one. And in no time at all, they've forgotten that there is no moment where the audience is told they're sisters. Yeah. Uh, and a whole beat of the narrative is missing. And, uh, and that's something, it's when I've made, because uh, I produce as well now quite a lot of the stuff that gets made. And uh, I always try to get someone to watch it who is reasonably intelligent, but has had nothing whatsoever to do with its production. Yeah. Because they will then give you some questions and they'll say, but why was he going down that road? And you realize that the scene which told you that has gone. Yes. <laughs> and and uh, those, the beats of the narrative, I think are very important. Can I just go back to, to film for a moment? Because obviously an incredible, the first time we met now many years ago was with Gosford Park when we did the world premiere of the London Film Festival. And, and that had, it seemed to me, I mean, obviously you were working with one of the world's most famous and iconic filmmakers in, in Robert Altman. And that film, it's, I, I, I think kind of changed your career. I mean, obviously Academy Award, it, it, it was celebrated. How was that in terms of how did that come about? And that, the working, I'm interested in the working relationship with with working in American cinema and, and with Robert Altman, because often it's said here is that we tend to think of it in the UK film and, and especially television as a writer's medium. In the US, they think of movies as a director's medium. And I just wondered... What was, what was the creative relationship and, and, about Gosford Park like? Well, um, I mean, it was an extraordinary thing. I mean, I was rung one morning by Bob Balabat, one of the producers whom I knew, uh, and he knew that Robert Altman wanted to make a film about an English country house. But, of course, it was not his territory. No. And um, Bob Balaban knew that it was mine, even though I'd never written a film that had got made by that time, just a couple of children's series. And so what I did quite consciously was I went out more or less as I put down the telephone to uh, a video store, as they were in those days, uh, and I took out every Altman film I could find. And I had a kind of three-day Altman festival of watching all these movies, some of which had been successful, some not, but I watched them all. Uh, and I realized this sort of multi-narrative, multi-arc shape that Altman liked. Um, if he had a weakness as a filmmaker, it was when he didn't see the shapes through. And so the stories didn't have a satisfactory conclusion, but uh, they were always very rich in narrative. And what I felt was that Bob uh, Altman had probably said yes to this idea in a weak moment uh, and then had started to ask himself why on earth he wanted to make a film about an English country house. And so what I wanted him to do was to pick up the script when I finally sent it to him and think, well, you know, here goes nothing. But then when he opened the page and started to read, he would be reading an Altman script. I wanted him to have total recognition of the form of the structure of the narrative or many narratives. Uh, and so that was quite deliberate on my part. In fact, um, as it happened, I found the multi-narrative form suited me. Right. Up to that point, I'd only ever done kind of linear narrative one story and then in the end he gets the girl and that's that. But uh, the multi-narrative 
offers you far more variety and opportunity. So actually, after Gosford, um, when I did start writing for television and various other things, it was a form I rather stuck to, but that was how it began. And then we had this uh, strange uh, thing. Again, it was pretty lucky, really. Uh, Bob had had a fairly bad run for a few years. He'd had some very successful pictures uh, early on, you know, MASH and and so on. But uh, lately, over the previous six or seven years, he hadn't had a hit. And uh, as we got nearer filming, uh, more and more of his friends in London and everything kept saying, Guy, here you're making a film about the British class system. Good luck. And so he started, he didn't want to be lampooned as a fool. He knew that all the critics would be expecting him to make a wildly inaccurate picture that didn't reflect the British class system at all. And he didn't want that. And so he came to me and he said, would you be on the set for the whole of the shoot? Now, of course, for a writer, that is very unusual. I mean, yes. you're, yeah. you're normally as welcome as diphtheria. But, but uh, he said, would you do this? And I said, yes. And then we got to the first day of shooting. And Bob thought he liked to play with Im- improvisation. Because um, in a way, uh, he wanted to be... Uh, a, an auteur director, which he wasn't really. He was a brilliant, brilliant director. And um, so we're doing this first scene, which funnily enough was the first scene in the film, which of course is completely coincidental. <laughs> and um, they were there and Bob said, oh, I don't care what it says in the script. You say what you like. And uh, of course, one of the actors who had quite a small part was absolutely thrilled. He came up. Like, like a, a sort of new book of the Bible came pouring out. But um, everything they said was wrong for 1932. It was the end of 1932. And they were using phrases from the 70s, 80s, 90s. And, um, and I thought to myself, well, now this is it. Because you're 50 or nearly, or, or I was 50, I think. If this film doesn't work, this was your big chance. And um, had I been 31, I would have sat there in silence, but I I knew that if the film failed, I'd never be given a similar opportunity again. Uh, And I said, Bob, this is absolute rubbish. This is nonsense. And and every phrase would have to be cut. You'd end up with a film a minute long. And, of course, he was absolutely furious and he was entitled to be because, I mean, I was there. I was there as his underling and here I was, you know, and um, he said, well, I don't want that scene. I don't like it. I'll tell them to say nothing. And I said, nothing is fine, but this is rubbish. And um, so we had this kind of Mexican standoff and this picture I hadn't been shooting for half an hour, you know, and um Anyway, we got through it and they didn't really say nothing. They went back to the script, of course, and, they, and that was that. Uh, but he never did it again. Uh, and, and then we came to a compromise, which, which I thought was fine, which was that the actors had to say their lines. But once they'd said them, it didn't matter much what they said after that. I mean, there were one or two that got through. Uh, I remember um, when uh, Michael said the Empire Leicester Square, that wasn't in the original. And, and uh, of course, the line that everyone always says, uh, oh, my favourite line in Gosford is when Maggie Smith says, difficult colour green. And when I was, the picture was only just out, I used to say, well, actually, that was Maggie Smith. The rest is me, but, but that was Maggie. And then after a bit, I just thought, oh, sorry, thank you. <laughs> and that was that. And you see, the other thing about Bud Altman, just before we started shooting, or about, I say just before, about three weeks, um, the studio panicked because they didn't really understand the script. 
they didn't know anything about um, these people. And I think what triggered it was the fact that the servants downstairs were called by the names of their employers, which of course was true because otherwise the butler of the house would have to remember all the names of the guests and all the names of their individual ladies, maids and valets and things. Uh, and I mean, that was a memory championship. So uh, this was a custom in most houses that, that you took the name during the house party, not otherwise. And um, of course, that was the final straw. And, and so they said, could they bring in uh, uh, just for a light polish, you know? Well, you and I know that a light polish <laughs> means a new draft and the old script's gone out the window. Uh, but Altman wouldn't allow it. Now, again, that was very individual. When that usually happens, the director meets you for a drink. He's incredibly sorry. If it was up to him, this wouldn't be happening, blah, blah, blah. But they all give in. But Altman wouldn't give in. And he said, we're making the script, the film with, with Julian's script or not at all. So uh, I do really owe him not just the opportunity of the job, but the fact that he defended my position. But the other thing, one of the, the many hallmarks of your work, but one of the things that, and, and also, I, I, you know, in terms of difficulty, degree of difficulty, is the amount of wit. I mean, intelligence and wit, but but comedy. I mean, one of the things that makes Downton great is it has it has terrific drama, it has wonderful characters, but it also has an awful lot of wit in it, and 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 and. I'm just wondering about, because a lot of people talk about how difficult it is to write comedy. Was that something that you had a, you felt you had a felicity from, from the, the, the beginning? It's not, you know, particularly in terms of dialogue. Uh, in a sense, it's obviously something I have some ability for, because otherwise it wouldn't have worked. No. Um, you need the right players. I mean, I had uh, Maggie, who is a very, very skilled actress, uh, and a skilled comedian. She also has the ability, which is an absolute gift to a series writer, that she can go from a scene that's very serious and makes you cry into one that makes you laugh in the space of about three minutes without turning into someone else. Right. Some actors play their comedy in their series, but essentially they become another person. Uh, and she doesn't do that. She makes it all be the same person. So she's very rewarding to have in a cast in a series because, quite honestly, you can do anything you like with her as far as the narrative is concerned. She also shares with Michelle uh, a, a thing, a quality that I like, which is that neither of them cares if they're unsympathetic in a particular story. You can give them the side that the audience won't be on. And... Um, and also, you can vary them. You know, there are situations that Mary had where you were on her side and, and you felt she'd been treated badly or this was very bad luck or whatever. Uh, and other times you thought, oh, what a snobbish thing to say and how, uh, you know, that's very cold and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and it allows you to have uh, a nice and varied character who has different sides to them. I mean, my own belief which I think does come out in what I write, is that nobody's all bad and nobody's all good. And, uh, and on the whole, it is the situation that brings that out. I mean, you know, the nastiest person on earth uh, can be fond of, you know, I mean, I, in the film, the new film, uh, a character says even Attila the Hun loved his family. And, and um, you know, that, if you bring all that stuff to the fore, it gives you a kind of variety. And, and in terms of Downton, obviously, incredibly successful run of the television series. Then you made the first film, which also is successful. How, how different was it, you know, because you've just described the process of, of creating television. How difficult was it to go, OK, we're not doing television anymore. I'm actually writing a movie, and now a second movie, and, and containing the, the narrative within the, the frame of a movie rather than thinking about it as a television series. What, was it difficult or was it, was it very straightforward? Because you know... No, you I, 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 yes, it was difficult. I think that was the key difficulty, actually, because the audience was used to the television series. 
And when you make a film of a TV series, what you have to make is something that is undisappointing to the people who love the series, but is more than just another episode of the series. That's your double challenge. Because otherwise, why have they driven out at night in the rain and parked the car and, you know, and all of it? So um, that's, and, and, and with Downton, we had, I forget the number, but, but something like 20 running characters who appeared every week. And the pattern was that they would have, most of them would have a decent story about once every three or four episodes. And the other weeks, they would be part of someone else's story. Right. And, um, and that was true for almost everyone. I mean, there were certain players that probably had a little bit more to do every week, but that was basically the structure. And all the running characters would know that at the beginning of the series, they would have at least two episodes where they had a good, strong storyline. Um, but when you get to the film and you've got your 100 hours, you've then got to get 20 of them into reasonably strong storylines because it isn't enough in a film to have them just say, me too. <laughs> and, and, and so you're trying to find stories, obviously, that will involve more than one of the characters and the three or four people will be in this story. But uh, nevertheless, you've got to have uh, several different stories, half a dozen, whatever it is. Uh, and they've all got to have something to do. And they've all got to have a couple of decent scenes. Um, and in the end, uh, you have to develop uh, a kind of uh, ability to tell a story in a very limited number of scenes. So you've got, you know, this, this is the story and you're going to tell it in four scenes and that's all you've got. And, um, and I would say that was quite a challenge, but uh, I think it worked in the, in the first film. I mean, it, they did all have well. something to do. Uh, some of them had more to do than others. Uh, and I've tried in the second film to give a bit more to the ones who were a little underserved in the first one. This is Downton Abbey, A New Era, the, the one where- Downton Abbey, A New Era. Uh, and, and we have a different structure, uh, which changes the emphasis. But um, I mean, that is that is the thing because uh, you want everyone to come home delighted they went to it uh, and not feel, well, what happened to Robert? We hardly saw him, you know? So you're trying to avoid that really. I, I wanted to ask, um... In, in terms of you've already said about networking, you've you, you've you've said a number of things about about script writing. But in terms of advice to young scriptwriters listening to this, in terms of wanting, you know, because you you found inspiration from a different a number of different sources. You 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 you've worked in all kinds of different facets of of the entertainment industry as a producer, as a director, as a as a writer, uh, as an actor. Um, and I just wonder what advice you'd give to a, you know, to a, to a writer starting off saying I want who wants to be a screenwriter, whether it's for film or television, and um, and they're thinking about about what they do and how they actually do move forward. They they may have a great idea, they may they may have you know started to write, but they haven't necessarily got anything commissioned. What what kind of advice would you give to them? I mean, this is difficult because everyone has a different career and different things, uh, your lucky break and, you know, and many different things. And one thing I would say is that your lucky break may not come in the shape that you are expecting. And you should stay open to all sorts of lucky breaks. My problem with uh, for beginner writers is what are they in it for? Are they in it to show their views and what they care about and saving the planet or whatever it is? Or are they in it to make a 50 year career out of writing for the screen and the stage? In which case there's gotta be something about their shows that makes people want to come and see them and also come and see the next one. Yeah. And I mean, I always remember speaking at a festival at one time and uh, this young writer uh, stood up and he had this idea for a film and actually, what he didn't realize is it was a fantastically good idea for a sitcom and, and a rom-com. And, and, and uh, it was very fun, or could have been very funny, but it wasn't. It was all rather depressing. And then at the end, it had this miserable ending. 
I said, why have you made this unhappy with an unhappy ending when actually it's a natural piece of comedy? He said, in my view, a film has to earn a happy ending. I said, you're quite wrong. I said, a film has to earn an unhappy ending. <laughs> if you sit through a mediocre film, but everyone's happy at the end, that's okay. But if you sit through a mediocre film and everyone's depressed and unhappy at the end, that's intolerable. <laughs> it's rather like when someone comes in to see me, which they do occasionally, and they say, well, I want to be an actor, but I haven't decided quite. Maybe I want to be a director or I might want to be a presenter. You know, in that moment, they will never be anything because their initial impulse is watered down and divided and confused. And even they don't know what they want. So the, the guy on the other side of the desk isn't going to be able to find out what they want. Mm. Uh, and I think if you keep, keep it simple initially uh, and you have a little bit of success, there will come a time later when you can spread it a bit and mm. try things that are not your usual format. Yes. Uh, I mean, I don't think I would have been the natural go-to guy for School of Rock, but uh, I got it, yeah. you know, and, very and, successful. and it was very successful. <laughs> yeah. uh, so just because you hone your ambition initially, it doesn't mean you're stuck with that. You can broaden it later and experiment in different forms. Well, I think that's a that's that's a really good conclusion, Julian. That that that's uh, a, a very good way uh, to end. And and I I really am appreciative of of, of all your time uh, th this morning. It's it's been great to talk to you for the Film London uh, Beyond the Frame podcast. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it, and I hope I've said something that you, is useful to someone. <laughs> Thank you to Julian Fellows for that chat. Downton Abbey, A New Era, is due to open in cinemas next year. Now, here's Lucy Bryden talking about filming your debut feature with Laura Stratford from our partnerships team. Lucy, pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Um, I have to ask you, no, honestly, it's just, it's so great to go to interview today. Um, I'm so curious. I mean, your film came out basically in the height of lockdown, right? Yeah. Like, please tell us about that. Like, how was, what was that like? <laughs> that was weird. I mean, you know, um, on the scale of like things that went wrong in 2020, I suppose in the great scheme of things, it wasn't, um, you know, earth shattering. But yeah, when you work on a film for X years, um, you kind of want to get like, <laughs> you know, like a little bit of a fanfare when it finally gets um, into the cinemas. So yeah, it was always a, it was a bit of a, um mission we were very fortunate in the fact that the cinema release date coincided with the sort of loosening there was a loosening period if you remember like around october so um very luckily for us although obviously sort of planned by the distributors a bit um we were able to have like obviously in person you know an actual small cinema release and that was that was really wonderful because obviously that's why you make films in the first place um but yeah the 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 sort of months leading up to that there was a lot of uncertainty there were quite a few changes of dates in terms of you know when when things were going to happen um which is you know a bit frustrating because obviously you know you want to kind of lock lock on it but you know everyone was I suppose everyone in the world was going through similar things so um why would why would we have been any different um but it was one it was great to sort of you know get it out and get it seen and then um quite Soon after our release, we all kind of went into a harder lockdown again. So we were happy to get our little, our moment in the sunshine, so to speak. I'm curious. I mean, obviously you've talked about, you know, in previous interviews, how you've drawn from your own experiences. You've conducted a huge amount of research, right? And sort of carrying out various interviews with people who suffer from anorexia. You say that you hope this film opened up the conversation. I'm um, just wondering did it did that all pay off like what has been the reception generally from audiences once the film was released that's a really good question um and now I suppose uh you know now that it's been out in the in the world for a bit it's um been good to pick up on that I mean I think um 
a lot of the feedback I've got has been positive, although I suppose as the writer director, people aren't necessarily going to say mean things to your face. So um, yeah, it's been, it's been positive, I think in terms of just, um, yeah, taking away that stereotype of this kind of issue um, and saying, you know, it, it can be, it's not a teenage girl disease. It's not something that's just, you know, something you get over and then you, you know, it, it's incredibly complicated. Um, and yeah, I've had some really positive responses from audiences. I remember actually at the premiere in Glasgow, which again was the last physical festival before the pandemic hit in the UK anyway. Um, so we were really la- lucky we got that in there. Um, you know, there, there were some mental health nurses at that premiere and they said in the Q&A, you know, really like, I think they were, they sort of, I think they probably gone along, like not quite sure what to expect, but they were so impressed with the performance that Sham put into it and with how, you know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't just sort of, um, what's the expression? You know, it it wasn't kind of exploiting it. I think is is the is the point, um, which was always the intention. So it was really good to get that validation that we'd been successful from people that hadn't been involved in it. Um, and yeah, I hope I think it has sort of touched a lot of people, which is good. Um, which was the intention. You mentioned Sean, and obviously, I mean, all the actors give an astounding performance, and we'll hopefully come on to that later. But I also wanted to ask you, you know. Obviously, this was originally a short film idea. Then it becomes a feature. Thanks to Film London. Um, I'm curious, what was the biggest challenge about, you know, transferring this this baby of yours, this film baby, from a short to a feature? Like, what what, what were the difficulties of that process? The, the main difficulties, I suppose, are, as a first-time filmmaker, kind of think, you know, wondering how this fascinating character of yours can fit into this kind of shape of a feature film that most feature films have, whether we like it or not. Um, And yeah, just getting that kind of nailed because I was always fascinated with Stephanie and I always knew that she had, the reason I expanded it from a short in the first place is because I was so interested in her and um, I felt like there was so much to say about her. But then, um, yeah, just the sort of, parameters of um you know conflict and and um you know drama a lot of my early drafts probably lacked a bit of that and I was very it was probably straying more into kind of visual arts or like a non-narrative sort of like not strictly narrative film um so uh yeah I I think it was just sort of adhering to certain structural things was probably the, the biggest challenge but I think that always is that always is a challenge anyway um but the the yeah the short was about um yeah, a woman that just uh, she, her she her daughter makes her cake for her birthday and she can't eat it, and because of her anorexia and so yeah. But then I just I just sort of very quickly wrote a very drafty first um, first uh, screenplay and that's and then you know that we submitted that to microwave and then they saw something in it which was awesome um, and here we are. And were there any sort of challenges once you were on set? you know, and sort of production-wise, were there any challenges sort of coming from a short to a feature just as a first-time, you know, writer-director? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you know, it's always a, a battle to make a film and it's all, you know, I don't think any film, even a massive budget one, not that I've made a massive budget one, but, you know, I think there's always, it's all relative and there's always, it's always going to be difficult. But, yeah, I think it was just the sheer, the constant stress and the constant, like, you know, this is your baby, being conscious that this is your baby, this is your chance, and this is, everyone's looking to you for guidance. And sometimes you just don't know the answer, but you have to pull something out of your bum and and make out like you do know everything. (laughs) That's the thing that I think I've got a lot better at that. But honestly, there's definitely some moments when you're like, I I, I just don't know. I just don't know the answer to that question. And I've got 500 people asking me a different question about something else. And any director will say that that's the sort of thing is you are kind of like the question you just asked to answering questions like all, all the time. That's all directing really is. Um, and uh, as, as more of a writer, you know, my experience was more in screenwriting, you know, and I'm used to being on my own a lot more. And then suddenly all these people are like asking me stuff that, that was quite a, a tough challenge. And, and obviously for longer, for days on end, for longer periods of time than I had done with shorts. Um, yeah. 
it was it was pretty intense but also I you have to love it like it's it's such a wild ride making an, an independent film that um yeah it's something now I look back on it and I I do discuss with my heads of department who I'm still friends with like we're like how did we do that like how did we how did we pull that out of the bag and then you, you do somehow which is sort of the magic of filmmaking how long how long did it take for you to shoot we had seven 16 day shoot actually it was really short and then 16 one, days yeah god everyone take no <laughs> it is not isn't wow. it? um and one pickup day uh, wow. Which was obviously, which was relatively relaxed because um, everyone had managed to go away for a couple of weeks. And then, but we, we, yeah, I mean, if anything, that kind of wow, that's that's that was that's a shock for me, right? Oh, I didn't yeah. realize there's a shorter period of that. That's pretty amazing. I mean, my next question was going to be to you know actors, right, and sort of getting the best performances out of them on set, which is obviously always going to be a challenge, especially if you don't have time for rehearsals or whatever. Yeah. Um, how did you do that? Just because, I mean, Sean's incredible. Obviously, the rest of the cast are amazing too. What's, you know, what's what's your top tip, I guess, for directors out there who are wondering how to kind of get a performance out of an actor, especially when it's quite a emotionally demanding scene? Yeah. Um, Shan's amazing. It's kind of, It's really her film. And I think the other actors would acknowledge that because obviously she's in like pretty much every scene, well, most of the scenes and, it, you know, it's her story. Um, and she's so wonderful and so intelligent. And she asked me so many questions and she wanted to, you know, really work out the character before we stepped onto the set. And actually she didn't, her and Amanda both didn't really like rehearsing that much because they've done a lot of television and they just want to kind of get into it. Um, which now I think is actually really nice. It's a really good approach, but my previous shorts, I had tended to rehearse actors a bit more, but they just weren't so interested. Like they wanted to be fresh for it. Um, So I would say knowing, like getting to the emotional truth of the character's journey and the moment that you're in when you're shooting and making sure you're really on top of that stuff as a director. And then that, and that your, your, your actor knows that Um, that's the key really, isn't it? Just, um, but doing all that work beforehand and having lots of conversations with them and making it making them comfortable with you, um, because there's a lot of complex, difficult, really intimate stuff in this film, and I think it was about trust for Shan. It always is about trust with actors, actually, but particularly for this role, it was really hard for her, um, and I really respect the integrity she brought to it. But she trusted me, um, and that took a bit of time, and that took you know being kind of becoming friends, you know. And um, so I think, get, yeah, trust, getting your actress, actress to trust you is the most important, um, is the most important thing. Was there a sort of a film or film director that kind of provided a lot of inspiration for how you approach sort of the visuals or just the, the project in general? I'm just, I'm curious to know what your key inspirations are, I guess. Yeah, Um they they kind of you know I suppose in development they tend to evolve, but um, my my couple of my major inspirations initially were um, Michel Franco, who's a Mexican director who does a lot of very long takes. He tends to do kind of static in his early work. He tends to do a lot of static shots and sort of let things play out. And um, that I thought was a really int- it's a really interesting approach, and it kind of with kind of really heavy material, I think that lightness of touch kind of really just lets the performances shine. Um, so that, uh, and then um, Chantal Ackerman's um, uh, Jean Dielman, which is a classic 70s, um, is it 70s? Yeah, uh, feminist film, which is very, you know, has a lot of long takes and um, has a lot of like repetitive behaviour um, to illustrate the wider point of the story of the it's not really a, but it is a story but it's a kind of minimal story um but it's a classic and it's really beautifully shot so those two i say were really early influences and then um as sort of more narrative as narrative progressed there was um you know thinking about like clio barnard i mean she she was one of the mentors uh through film, from film london side which was great, and she read a couple of drafts. 
Um, but yeah, just to tap into more of the emotional journeys of the characters, um, her work, I would say. It's it's funny you mentioned the static shots because that was my, yeah, my experience of it was, God, there were some really like arresting moments in the film. And I have to say that coupled with silences as well, it's just incredibly impactful. Was that a conscious decision or did that just sort of come out of the filmmaking like post-production process, the use of silence? Oh, um, no, it was conscious. It was always, I was always aware that like Stephanie's like world and solitude and the progression of that was a key to kind of getting in her mind just because of the style of the film and stuff. It wasn't like, you know, super handheld up in her face, like seeing her emote. It was like very like, cause it, I always wanted to be respectful of her, but as the film where it goes on, um, the like the way she's framed sort of changes and there's those three key eating scenes which are always a kind of linchpin moments for how how her character is progressing um, so they were all really like very uh, carefully thought through the sound is I would say some elements of the sound design were were products of working with a really great sound designer in post so um, in one in the f- second section of the eating you might notice that her stomach like her stomach noises are like really yeah true. prevalent and that's such a it's such a weird noise but I thought it was so it was the Karine's idea the sound designer and she um you know it's, it's it's a strange noise because it's something you don't really hear in film or tv ever so we had a lot of like we really like we got into like the idea of like kind of amping that stuff up and like the kind of noises um so and yeah the sounds of water and things um as well sort of to kind of loosely connect with you know the whole um the sequences where she's on the beach etc so um yeah that that was all kind of planned the bits there's some of the parts with um the beach for example were kind of they came later and they came during production because you know things changed things evolved um but i think they worked really well but they did they changed the tone of the film and actually it, it meant that we changed the title of the film because it was called sicker um oh, right. yeah and and, right. okay. and then once we got yeah and then once we got to kind of the edit um or once we got the edit kind of you know in a decent shape we were like oh it doesn't really suit the, the film at all um I think it was actually Olivier or someone at Film London that might have said that and they were right and then I was like okay so that was another nice point was to go back and be like well what is the name of this new film um and I found a line from a poem and it said something about bodies, of wa- a body of water. And then I thought, oh, you know what, that that actually really works for this. So that's, yeah. So it's funny how it, it all kind of, the, the process is so nebulous. Um, and yeah, seamlessly came together. Um, <laughs> so you've mentioned, you know, the three key eating scenes, right? Looking back in the overall process during the shoot, is there like a standalone scene, which was your favorite to film and maybe not favorite you know in a sort of positive sense but is there is there a memory from the production process which kind of stands out in your memory I think that the the gorging scene at the end I mean that was that's like one of my all-time favorite things that I've ever made and it's really like weird and like uncomfortable but when we were on set I mean it was also amazing on set because there was such a build up to it because Shan had obviously been like training and honing herself and she wasn't, you know, she was on a really, really strict diet. And then um, she had to do the scene and, and because of the, the nature of production, obviously all we did all the scenes in her house at the beginning of the shoot. So it was only, but well, we left this one sort of day five, but she still had like, you know, a lot more of the shoot to go afterwards. So she, um, so, and I think she thought the thing she I remember sort of saying to me, like, I think she was really excited at the prospect of like stuffing her face because she, she'd been like so restricted for a while. Um, and then, um, she, uh, she, so she, she was really excited about it, but she couldn't like, once she did it, she just absolutely couldn't 
she couldn't hold it down and she was vomiting. Yeah, um, really? And it was really, really, it was so intense. And we only did two takes of that because it was so, uh, but it was very hard to watch. But I think personally, I like things like that. So I was like, mm, this is good because everyone was like crowding around the monitor, like, oh my God, this is, because it looked beautiful. And then it just gets so weird and um, dark. And um, so that probably is one. And then the other one is probably the end scene. I'm not sure if I should give that away, so. But, no, you know, no, in the water. Yeah, you, you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean. Yeah, yes, that was, I do. Uh, yeah. I can tell you that one off air, but that was pretty intense to shoot that one as well, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, but it was interesting with shooting that scene as well, because uh, the first take was the one we used because she was she was so ravenous that it really shows. And then the second take, she had been so, she'd obviously been kind of sated. And so it felt a lot more performed, um, which was just really interesting uh, how you make those choices um, and what they say. Yeah. I'm aware that we're coming to the end of the interview, but um, I've got to ask, what are you working on now? What's, what's next? Um, I'm got, I'm really busy now. It's really good. Um, I I teach screenwriting at, at Warwick University, but I also am I'm working on um, a TV couple of TV series. One is an original thing that I have actually been trying to get made for like ten years and has just been optioned. Um, and it's about it's a drama. It's like a six part drama. And um, the other TV series is with uh, Gomont. It's a sort of horror. Uh, yeah, it's like a horror series set in the Scottish Islands, um, kind of folk horror-y. And then uh, uh, two feature films. So one is uh, a sort of dystopia and the other one is a is a punk, is a post-punk rock biopic. So yeah, quite an eclectic <laughs> mix of stuff. Um, and other things are rumbling along, but, you know, those are the main ones. So yeah, it's been great. And also, you know, just having a film out has just made it, the conversations a lot easier and, you know, people just see you in a different light when when you've made a feature. So it's, it feels really good to have um, that under my belt. Post-punk rock biopic. God, yeah. sorry. I'm still digesting that. <laughs> it's about um, the band The Fall. So it's um, Brick Smith, who was married to Marky Smith. Um, it's her, based on her book. Um, so it's sort of largely set in the eighties, but um, yeah, it's it's going to be really fun. But yeah, very different body of water, obviously. Um, so yeah, keep keep it keep it varied is is my favourite thing. <laughs> Thank you to Lucy Bryden for joining us. As of this recording, you can watch Body of Water online with a BFI Player subscription. Thank you for joining us for this season of Beyond the Frame. We hope to return in the new year with more episodes, but until then, we'd love it if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us at film underscore London on Twitter to find out first when we're coming back. This has been Beyond the Frame, presented by Film London, and I'm Adrian Wooden. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>